So we've been walking through this sermon series called Following, and we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount. And I, I, I titled it Following because I really do believe that Jesus is forcing the multitudes into a decision. And the decision is, will you follow the culture of the day, or will you follow Jesus? I think that's a decision we still have to make today. Now, our culture looks drastically different from the culture of Jesus' day. In Jesus' time, if a woman was caught in adultery, like some people might have accused Mary, you know, Mary and Joseph are betrothed before they have Jesus. Mary and Martha, or Mary and Joseph are betrothed. And uh, what that meant was that they were legally married, but they hadn't consummated the, the marriage yet. So they're legally married. They would live with their own parents for a year. Joseph would prepare the house for a year. And after this year of being legally married, which, by the way, what a long engagement time, huh? A year? Anyways, some of you are in your second year of engagement, and you're like, that's nothing. But but a year-long engagement, legally married. At the end of that year, he would go to her house. And he would bring her to his house, and there would be a procession the whole way, and it would be a party. It would be a party the whole way from one house to the other. And you were actually, even if you were a stranger, you were expected, if you came across this processional, you were expected to join in and celebrate. It was considered rude because marriage was such an important thing. But that also meant, conversely, that marriage was such an important thing that if there was a betrayal in that marriage, if a woman had committed adultery, She could be stoned, which meant that the people in the city would pick up rocks and throw rocks at her until she died. You thought dodgeball was tough. So that was an expectation, right? That was was part of their culture. Now, we don't have that in our culture today. In our culture today, stoning would be unheard of. But that was, a, that was a cultural issue that Jesus was dealing with. So there were cultural things that Jesus had to confront. Our culture looks different. But the question still rings true today. Are you going to follow the culture? Are you going to walk in line with the culture? Are you going to let culture influence you? Or are you going to follow Jesus? So during the life of Christ, there were two main political groups that controlled the culture of the day. There were the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Now there were some other political groups and there are some other nuance, but these were the two main ones and these were the two ones that really controlled the cultures. The Sadducees controlled the temple. And since they controlled the temple and Second Temple Judaism, which was the Judaism that was practiced during Jesus' time, well, you can't have Second Temple Judaism without the Second Temple, right? So the temple was a huge part of Judaism in Jesus' day. The reason why it's not a huge part of Judaism today is because there is no temple. But because they controlled the temple, they had a huge influence in the culture. The other political group were the Pharisees. The Pharisees controlled the synagogue. Now, the common man actually disliked the Sadducees. And they disliked the Sadducees because although they controlled the the temple, they were also seen as corrupt. We know of some political groups today that have a big impact on culture, right? But a lot of common people would say, ah, they're probably corrupt. 
But the Pharisees had a huge impact, had a huge influence on the common man, and it's because they controlled the synagogue. So Sadducees controlled the temple, Pharisees controlled the synagogue. Now the synagogue was a place to learn about God. You know, if you lived too far away to commute to the temple every day, where would you go? You'd go to the synagogue. But it was also, so it was a place to learn about God, but it was also a community center, a place where a community life would happen. Marriages were arranged. Charity was dispersed. Court hearings would actually be conducted at times in the synagogue. Many synagogues had something that was called a mikvah, which was a place where you could ritually cleanse yourself before going in front of God. And so we see that, that the synagogue was a place to connect with God, to learn about God, to connect with God, but it was also a place to connect with others within the community. And it is clear that the synagogue was incredibly important in that culture. So whoever controlled the synagogue influenced the culture. Whoever controlled the synagogue had a huge amount of control in the culture. We see this in the Gospel of John when he writes, they believed, so certain, certain people with authority believed in Jesus, but did not confess because they feared the Pharisees would put them out of the synagogue. So they were afraid of the Pharisees. Why? Because the Pharisees controlled the synagogue, therefore the Pharisees controlled the culture. So the Pharisees were incredibly influential in Jesus' time. And they had drifted into a self-righteousness. The Pharisees were plagued with self-righteousness. They believed that they could earn their righteousness, that their works made them more righteous in God's eyes. They believed that they could somehow make themselves right with God if they did and believed certain things. And if you didn't do and believe certain things, you were just not as righteous as them. And I think self-righteousness is actually the world's operating system. I think it's one of those things that we're kind of naturally inclined to. I've, I've used the term, we're all recovering legalists, and I've used this term several times because I think there's a natural inclination to turn, there's a natural bent to turn towards self-righteousness. Think about it as kids. How often do you compare yourself to somebody else and think you're better because you do or you don't do? We see this all the time with children, don't we? So-and-so believes this. They're so foolish. So-and-so doesn't believe this. Can you believe that? And why do kids struggle with it? Because it's the world's operating system. But beyond that, think about every other religion outside of Christianity. They're all works-based. You will be more righteous. You will be in a right relationship with God if you pray more. If you pray facing a certain direction. If you pray five times a day facing a certain direction, you'll be more righteous. That's how you become more righteous, is if you pray five times a day facing a certain direction. 
Or maybe it's if you give to the poor. If you pray five times a day facing a certain direction and you give to the poor, you're going to be more righteous. I had a good friend who was Muslim, who is Muslim. But he didn't live like a good Muslim. Now, I was a Christian. I am a Christian. And I didn't live like a good Muslim either. But he, because he could look at his life and how it didn't measure up, and he could look at my life, and I actually measured up according to Muslim standards better than he did, he would actually look at me and he would tell me that I was more righteous than him. Why? Because he believed in a works-based righteousness. So if you pray more, if you give to the poor more, maybe if you meditate more, and you actually, through all of your meditation, you actually give up all of your desire. And if you finally achieve this state of nirvana where you no longer have any desire, then you're more righteous, right? Maybe it's not by what you do, but you earn your righteousness by what you don't do. Abstain from eating certain animals. Abstain from certain behaviors. In our culture, I think sometimes we believe that we have a right relationship with God if we just love everyone. Because love is love. And what we really mean by love is if you just tolerate everyone. Don't discern between what is good and what is bad. Don't discern between what is a mental health issue and what is just natural. Maybe it's if you just protest for the right stuff. If you show up to the protest line, that means you're more righteous. You've earned your righteousness. It doesn't matter what kind of car you drive. It doesn't matter how many flights you take or if you own a private plane. You have the right ideology. One we see all the time in our culture is you're in a right relationship with God if you have the right political belief. Have you ever heard someone say, you can't be a Christian and vote for fill in the blank? But wait, I thought what made me a Christian is putting my faith and trust in Christ, not my political belief. When we make it a works-based thing, we make it grace plus. You're saved by grace plus your political beliefs. You're saved by grace plus your doctrine. You're saved by grace plus your works. You're saved by grace plus all this plethora of other things that you can throw into the mix. And that's just not it. You are saved by faith alone in Christ. By his grace alone is what you are saved by. And that salvation, don't get me wrong, that salvation will produce a lot of other things. But those other things aren't what saves you. So that's the world's operating system, is a self-righteousness, a righteousness that is earned. And the Pharisees had drifted away from Scripture that God had given them. So some people would say, but wait, in the Old Testament, there was an earned righteousness. And I would say, no, there was a work that came from a righteousness that was given to you by Christ. And we can look through uh, Old Testament and see that. Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It wasn't that Abraham did all these works, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It was Abraham believed, 
and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then as it was counted to him as righteousness, what do we see? We see his works flowing out through that. If we turn to Hebrews 11, we have a whole list of Old Testament saints who believed in God, and it was counted to them as righteousness. It has always been righteousness that comes through faith. Now that faith has always been displayed through different ways of works. But the righteousness comes through faith. Believing in God, trusting in God, that's where righteousness comes from. Not from the works that are displayed when you believe in God. It's so important for us to, know, to understand this because if we don't understand this, if we get this thing wrong and we think it's our works that make us righteous, which produce the faith, then we're going to slip right back into the same attitude. We're going to slip right back into the same problem the Pharisees had. We will become Pharisees if we do not understand that it is faith that makes us righteous. And as we submit to the word, we grow in our faith, and we act, that actually ends up producing the works. If we think it is the works that produce the righteousness, then our righteousness is on ourselves. And we will become legalist, self-righteous people just like the Pharisees. So when Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount, he has been in ministry for about a year now. He's been on several different preaching tours, proclaiming that he is the Messiah, God come in the flesh and producing signs that would authenticate his God-sized claim. The multitudes were following him because they loved the miracles. While the multitudes were following him because they loved the miracles, the hatred from the Pharisees is building. And I say that very accurately. The hatred from the Pharisees is building. We can say that is an accurate picture because the Pharisees will come to a point where they will kill him. They hated Jesus. They hated his claim. Now, don't get me wrong. The Pharisees had been waiting for their Messiah, but they had totally misjudged who this Messiah would be. They were waiting for a political deliverer, someone that would free them from Rome, not a personal savior. But I think there's even more going on with the Pharisees' hate for Jesus, and that is that they see their power being threatened. They see their influence being threatened. They see the same signs that authenticate Jesus' claim, just like the common man sees, but, with a, but through a different lens. A lens that cares more about themselves than about the truth. A lens that cares more about their own power and their own influence than about the truth. So Jesus comes off of a preaching tour with a multitude following him, and he comes to a mountain. And his disciples sit in front of him. The multitudes sit behind them. Now the text does not specifically say that Pharisees are in the back taking notes. But we do know that the Pharisees are there. And we know that they are there with a critical spirit. They are there with a spirit to try to poke holes in Jesus' claim. They're there trying to find a way that they can nail him down and lessen his influence. So when I talk about this Sermon on the Mount, I like to paint a picture. And I like to paint this picture because I think it helps us understand what's going on here. And I like to talk about the Pharisees being in the back. 
with a red pen taking notes. Now, don't take me literally on that. They didn't have red pins. But we see the spirit that they show up with. The Pharisees are there, and they're there to criticize Jesus. And so Jesus is there, and he's addressing, he's refuting the self-righteous culture of the day. And it's all leading up to this decision. Will you follow the culture of the day, which is an earned righteousness, or will you follow him? We see this as he introduces the sermon, and he gives us who is actually blessed by God in the section that we typically call the Beatitudes. There was a false belief that if you lived in a, a comfortable life, if you were wealthy, that meant God had blessed you. Who cares about how rebellious you've been against God? You're blessed because you're wealthy. Now, the word for blessed in the Greek is makarios, and we don't have a good translation, but the best word would actually be congratulations. Congratulations to those who mourn. Now, what's interesting is that some of these were not actually considered virtues, but actually a bad thing, to be poor in spirit, to be meek. In that culture, to be meek was actually an insult. Or to mourn. Yeah, sign me up. I'd like, to be the, I'd like to get the virtue of mourning. But Jesus flips our ideas upside down. Those who are too prideful to come to Jesus in a broken state will never trust him. They will still trust their own works. And they're still busy trying to prove their salvation through their works instead of simply trusting that Christ has made them righteous. I think Christians struggle with this all the time. How do I know I'm saved? Well, look at my works. Instead of saying, I've put my faith and trust in Christ and he is growing me. So he introduces the topic with this, congratulations, Makarios. Then he moves from the introduction, grabbing our attention, to letting us know what the sermon is all about. He gives us this thesis statement. In this thesis, he lets us know that he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Because some people, some Pharisees, with their red pin out, might say something like, ha, I knew it all along. He's trying to abolish the law. Now, the word for abolish is kataluo, and it means to destroy or dismantle. And when referring to the Bible, it means to disobey. So Jesus did not come to undermine or to teach people to disobey Scripture, but instead he came to fulfill it. This word for fulfill is plerau, and it means to cause to happen or make complete. Throughout Matthew's Gospel, when you read about Jesus fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy, this is the word used. So one of the biggest takeaways that we could take from this Sermon on the Mount is that all of what we would call the Old Testament is completed or fulfilled in Christ. Meaning he lives it out perfectly. It doesn't necessarily mean that all of it points to him. 
some people read this and they think, oh, we got to find how Jesus fits into every single verse. And I think that actually changes the meaning of, of a lot of Old Testament scripture. So it's not that we, we try to twist scripture to see how Jesus fits into every single verse. But simply that he lives it out perfectly. So when he sums up the Sermon on the Mount, and he sums up all of the Old Testament with what we would call the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do to you, Jesus lives this out perfectly. And after he says that he didn't come to abolish the law but to fulfill it, then he lets us know that if our righteousness does not surpass that of the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom. The Pharisees influenced the culture of the day. The Pharisees were considered the super special religious righteous people of the day. So if they couldn't make it, who could? If they couldn't make it, who could? And that was the point. Your works can't make you righteous. Only God can make you right with God. So the rest of the body of this sermon is unpacking that statement. He will give us this unpacking through, you have heard it said, but I tell you statements. Essentially, he's saying the Pharisees are teaching this. Let me correct that teaching. Then he gives us principles for practicing our faith. The main point of that section is don't be like the hypocrites. The hypocrites were those who tried to show off their religiosity. They were the ones who tried to show that they were the super righteous people of the world. And he's saying, don't be like that. And then that is followed by practical principles of trusting God. And then we get into the famous or infamous judge not lest ye be judged text. And then he'll give us the concluding remark for the body, the principle that sums it all up. Treat others the way you want to be treated. And that's the summation of it, right? From there, he forces us to make a decision. And he gives us three different pictures to, to force us into this decision. The wide and the narrow gate. Will you build your house upon the sand? And the fruit and the tree. And it all comes to this decision. Will you follow Jesus? Will you trust in his word and obey him. Will you trust that he perfectly fulfills scripture? Or will you keep striving for your own self-righteousness? Now throughout this series, I've talked about and I've emphasized how this is one sermon. We break it down into chunks and we try to, try to ingest it that way, but it is one sermon. And so today what I want to do is read through the entire sermon as one sermon. Now, kids, don't worry. It'll only take 12 minutes. All right. Keep playing with your fidgets. Here we go. When he saw the crowd, uh, one last thing is, I like to emphasize to people when we do this, don't read along with me. I know that's the temptation. I know we want to read along. But the original audience didn't have the Sermon on the Mount notes in front of them. They would have sat and listened and taken it in as much as they could. And so I want to encourage you to sit 
and listen. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to them. Then he began to teach them, saying, Makarios are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Makarios, congratulations, are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Makarios, congratulations, are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Makarios, congratulations, are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Makarios, congratulations, are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Makarios, congratulations, are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Makarios, congratulations, are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Makarios, congratulations, are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It is no longer good for anything but but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. So if you are offering your gift on the altar, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him to the court, or your adversary will hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body then your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. 
Again, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but it must be kept, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, because it is God's throne, or by earth, because it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, because it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, because you cannot make a single hair white or black. But let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you, and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends his reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them. Otherwise, you will have no reward with your Father in heaven. So whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be applauded by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, because they love to pray, standing in the synagogue and on the street corners, to be seen by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. When you pray, don't babble like the Gentiles, since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, because your Father knows the things you need before you ask Him. Therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive others, your Father will not forgive your offenses. Whenever you fast, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites, for they make their faces unattractive, so that their fasting is obvious to people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head. And wash your face, so that your fasting isn't obvious to others, but to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? 
No one can serve two masters, since he will either hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body. What you will wear isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather in the barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wild flowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was adored like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you? You of little faith. So don't worry saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Don't judge so that you won't be judged, for you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others, and you will be measured by the same measure you use. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye, and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye. Hypocrite! First take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to make the splinter out of your brother's eye. Don't give what is holy to dogs, or toss your pearls before pigs, or they will be trampled under their feet. Turn and tear you to pieces. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Who among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them. This is the law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life. And, find, and few find it. Be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce good, bad fruit. Neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so you'll recognize them by their fruit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the ones who do the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. 
Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the river rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house. Yet it did not collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the river rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like their scribes. O Lord, we thank you for your Sermon on the Mount. A sermon that confronts us wherever we are, confronts us and forces us to make a decision. Will we follow you? The perfect and holy God that came to this earth to save us from our sin, to save us from our own rebellion against you. Or will we stay in our rebellion and follow the culture of the day? We pray that you would help us to to enter through the narrow gate, to take the difficult path and follow you to life. In your name we pray, amen.